Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. Uh, Chuck, we have a very, uh, this is a very special episode. Uh, actually, the next few episodes will be very special because we have with us uh, a very special person who has consented to join us in these conversations. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about uh, our guest? Sure. We have Chief Dwayne Perry. And Chief, uh, I want to introduce you right now and give it to you so you can tell us a little bit about yourself and about the tribe. Chief Perry of the Ramapo Muncie people of this region. Short history of the tribe is that um, literally without the help of my ancestors, there would be no New York, no New Jersey, no United States. That's a large mouthful, and I can explain that when the time comes, of course. You might want to know that George Washington and the leadership of the time went to Tahitaway, which is the, we call it the gate that opens. For those who've come before and those who are yet to come, some people call it the Oven Cough. Some people call it Split Rock. At any rate, uh, Mr. Washington went up there. With the, that was a place that tribal people, the Ramapos, the Muncies, were known for settling disputes among other tribal people. And Split Rock was considered, is considered and continues to be considered a an energy site, a spiritual site. So the initial conversation to allow George Washington and what was then the rebels to use the Ramapo Pass was taken at Split Rock, which also was called at some point uh, Constitutional Hill. Now, the reason I'm saying it was it was literally the, the initial parts of the Revolutionary War could not have been won without the aids of my ancestors and without the use of the Ramapo Pass is quite simple. The Ramapo Pass is literally the back door to the New England colonies. Why that's important is because the British and whoever else could not reinforce or supply their troops except off the Atlantic and march them down from Canada. That eliminated any really surprise or strategic advantage. In, a distant, in, in addition, you might want to know that the first 900 cannonballs fired in the American Revolution was made from Ramapo and not be iron deposits. Chain across the Hudson was made from Ramapo Lenape iron deposits, and indeed the Capitol Dome and the Lady of Freedom above the dome was made from Ramapo Lenape iron deposits. I would just sort of like to end this thought with George Washington and his colleagues were so pleased because we had the same ideals of equality and freedom that once they had gained control of uh, the colonies, or rather of uh, winning the revolution, the very first thing that Mr. Washington did was to double-cross and, and to try to enslave the Ramapo people. And for that, thank you for Mr. Washington. We are still suffering. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. Great introduction. The uh, section of the book that we're reading from now is the section called Wounded Storytellers, and this introduces some of the folks up at uh, Ringwood, some of the Turtle Clan folks. I drove up to the Episcopal Good Shepherd Church in the borough of Ringwood and parked the car in the shoulder of the road just past the borough hall. The last time I had been to the hall was to attend a community action group meeting in which the Ramapo Indians and the representatives from the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, that's our EPA, faced off. It wasn't pretty. By the end of the evening, the students I had invited were equally exhilarated and exhausted. They stood outside the building on the asphalt, listening to Chief Mann, who further expanded upon his demand for full remediation of the paint sludge in the watershed at Ringwood. 
Getting out of my car now on a late Sunday morning, I looked back to the asphalt lot of the borough hall and clearly remembered the students' faces back then, pale in the orange glow from the utility lights. That had been a good night for learning and a bad one for resolution. Their papers poured forth with endless questions. Here in the Ringwood, everything is questioned. Little is answered, and resolution, like remediation, is a constant goal, not an entitlement. Looking for my new intern, Julie, I walked over to the little churchyard. Lisa Mann, the chief's sister, greeted me, and then a few elders nodded. One of them asked how things were going down at the well field in Ramapo. By this time in the town of Ramapo at Hilburn, New York, we were deeply involved in a Ford-sponsored remedial action. I chatted up with them and then noticed a shadow in a sporty red car at the end of the lot. Lisa asked if her brother was meeting me here, and before I could answer, she walked off to phone him. As I approached this sporty red car, the driver's door opened, and Julie, a psychology student intern looking to assist me in history work, stepped from the car. She is an attractive brunette with pale skin and big brown eyes and a very gracious smile, and until now I had not realized how very white she is. She came around from the side of the car, looking to see me and apologetic about the make of her car, Ford Mustang. I laughed and pointed out that in this slot there were a dozen cars that were, well, let's put it this way, hers was not the only Ford. Inside we took the last pew in the church. And it was only then that it occurred to me to ask if she was okay with singing about Jesus. She whispered that she was a Catholic. I nodded and whispered back that this might be a little different. The reverend, a traveling preacher named Stephen Roselli, came up to our pew, introduced himself to Julie, and thanked her for her attending. He is a vivacious fellow, exuding constant enthusiasm. His body language is that of an energetic devotee. It is his service that has kept this little community church from being taken down and torn down, literally, by the borough hall who wanted the space. He bounded back up to the altar, spun around, and jumped right in with an opening hymn. Julie and I found our hymnals and joined with the congregation in what was clearly the most off-key gathering of voices I have ever experienced. But what it lacked musically, it made up for insincerity. When the last note was heard, Reverend Stephen shook his head and said, Next time I want you to sing like Baptists. Everyone laughed. And whatever outside tensions that might have entered the church were now gone. When we sat down, Julie asked me if our host had arrived yet. I looked about the gray braided heads and told her, No, she was not there yet. She will come, I reassured her. She always reads aloud the list of prayer intents. Julie looked puzzled. But we were directed to rise for a second song, and this time the little church warmed up to jubilation. Again we sat. Vivian Milligan walked into my right and looked across the church at three elders, who turned and noticed her arrival. One of them stepped into the aisle and walked back to hold an urgent council with her. Next to the feathered medicine wheel on the reverend's rectory door, they stood. Vivian nodded, pulled out her notepad, and added a name. During this time, a congenial bit of across-the-aisle discussion had broken out, enhanced by a crying baby and a small terrier who offered up a few yelps in response to the child. The gospel reading was from Luke 16, 13 It was about dishonesty and shrewdness, which offers up the quote, No slave can serve two masters. 
and ended with a reminder that one cannot serve both God and wealth. Personally, I'd always felt that this blurred God and wealth into some sort of mutual role-playing. But then again, it's Luke, and Luke tends to put on an interesting spin of things. Reverend Stephen then launched into a rousing sermon about transcending materialism and eventually advised that one come to reckon with one's calling. This was followed by another song, and then a group prayer, and then the community peace-sharing, which involved the entire congregation walking about, shaking hands, and chatting. At one point, Reverend Stephen turned and walked back to the altar where he spun around and called upon Vivian Milligan. She rose, slowly, stately, and she proceeded to read out a list of names from her notepad. Actually, three lists. The first one for those who were no longer with us. The next one for those who were suffering. The last one for those in need of money. Almost all the names were the consequence of Ford's illegal dumping in the watershed. After the service, we received tea and morning cookies at the community kitchen. It was there that my intern asked me how Indians could be Christians. I told her this was not a simple answer, and I asked her to restate the question. So she said, well, uh, where is the Indianness?" So I walked her back into the church and pointed out the medicine wheel on the rectory door, the sweetgrass smudge by the sign-in book, and then I walked her up to the altar. There, just to the left of the altar, was an ancient sacred turtle shell. After all, the Ringwood people are the turtle clan. I suggested it would take time for her to take it all in. But the question was a good one and not easily answered. Native America has much in common with those who are battling severe illnesses and are co-opted by the medical establishment, just as traditional indigenous people were first beaten into submission and then colonized with Christian culture. People who face illness are medically colonized. Their stories are taken from them and reshaped by professionals who identify them as patients and patients only. But just as much of Native America has adapted to a variant of Christianity while retaining their Indianness, the ill community might well adapt to some of the structure of the medical machine while retaining their own story, or reclaiming their own story as a part of their recovery. Arthur Frank, author of The Wounded Storyteller, believes that the ill person who turns illness into story transforms fate into experience. He writes that the disease that sets the body apart from others becomes, in the story, the common bond of suffering that joins others in their shared vulnerability. We took my car and followed Vivian Milligan up Milligan Road into the heart of Turtle Country after the service. We drove past little ramshackled houses, each with its own set of dogs that looked up with a certain midday disinterest. At one point, Vivian's car stopped and idled by a small gathering of photos and flowers. As she proceeded, we slowed down and saw that this was a makeshift altar along the road. When we turned up Peter's Mine Road, we drove along a tall cyclone wire fence and then made a left turn just before a large locked gate bearing a sign that read a warning from Arcadis, that's Ford's chief environmental remediation agency. Now the road narrowed with ruts and boulders. The Turtle Clan's matriarch Vivian Milligan lived at the top of a rise, just below some of Peter Mine foundations. She got out of the car, and called to us that she would be right back. 
We parked in an open space, careful to avoid the constant, sudden movement of chickens. The yard was strewn with engine parts, alive with fowl and hound dogs tethered and barking. Vivian returned with her nephew, Jack, and instructed that he would lead us to Peter's mind. Vivian, a solid, tawny mixture of feminine and masculine attributes, announced this and then walked back to her home to attend to some barefooted child who was on the back door. It was only then that I noticed in her walk back, I noticed the young Ramapo faces that were all staring out at us from the windows. Jack turned to Julie and I and he said, It is a pleasure to walk with you. That's the uh, that's the beginning. I I have to say though, I'm, I was really taken by what you said up front, Chief. The when you really consider how established the British military was, we shouldn't have won. They should have been able to colonize and overtake us. So an awful lot of things had to go right for us, and an awful lot of things had to go wrong for them. And it sounds now. And I, I never knew this for the first time that that your people were one of the major things that went right for us and one of the major things that went wrong for them, which makes what happened to your people since then even more outrageous. Uh, so it's very striking. I'd also like to mention that the Shinnecock and any other number of, of uh, Northeastern tribal people were primarily resistors. They really never left their homeland. And it's it's notable to know that uh, the half dozen or so peoples that are still here were the half dozen peoples that never got federal recognition. And uh, that's sort of a lovely kickback to reality. Unbelievable. And you're talking, Chuck, now today about what happens when when that seed of racism and disenfranchisement is planted many, many years ago. And here you are still walking past the houses of many Ramapo children who are still disenfranchised. What do we do about this? What do we, I mean, I know you guys have been trying your best to do things about it, but what? Well, one, one thing to, to notice is I mentioned in the, in the reading that things were going well with the remediation in Torn Valley, in Torn Valley, New York. I mentioned that. Um, one of the things that we can talk about is, yeah, they were going well there. Um, there were people dying in Ringwood where there was three or four times the amount of toxic waste dumped into the watershed. They're going well in Torn Valley, New York, where there aren't a lot of people living. There are people downstream, but not right there in Ringwood. They're right on top of it. So it's kind of an interesting dilemma you've got. Ford cleaning up an area. Because it does need to be cleaned up, the area will drain into the well field. We've got all of that. But that concern was the concern of, well, a bunch of us activists, but it was also the concern of the water company once they realized we were correct in our measurements about how the water was migrating. How, I mean, the toxins were migrating with the groundwater. Well, the same exact thing is happening in Ringwood. And in a way, I mean, it's tragic, but in a way... One can look at the Turtle Clan members as the canary in the miner's cavern. Right. They're the ones who, that's the future of anybody who's drinking water from the Wanakew Reservoir. I, yeah, I think it's, it's curious. First of all, let me start out by saying uh, we're all grateful to the Ford Foundation, all the great things that Ford does with their money, but I'd like to get back to where 
I think the United States government and the Ford family themselves need to step forward and be who they are. Now, why would I say that? There was no issue in in Ringwood with any toxins with the mine. Also, let me preface what I'm going to say with literally, literally in every country of the world where a mine has played a significant point in the development of that country, they are now like cultural and historical places that people take tourists, they take the children. It's an educational affect. Now here with these mines without question, I'll show you. I have actually one of the first cannonballs. Oh, I got one too. <laughs> wow. Where literally the first cannonballs fired in the American Revolution, and like I said earlier, the chain across the Hudson, the Capitol Dome, were all made from Ramapo Lenape iron deposits in Ringwood. When later in the 50s, when Ford wanted to bring, build executive housing in Ringwood and the people refused to move, I would imagine then he was thinking much larger homes and they got the mine and it's all la di da. When they refused to move, he began dumping toxins in that mine to this day that has killed probably, and I would say killed, probably more than 50% of the people. But I'd like to precede that with, with this thought, the, the violent study. The violent study was developed to identify subhumans. Part of those subhumans were the Ramapos. Now... That goes along with eugenics, and yes, it was, eugenics was popular with some presidents and all that. Back to the violence study. Mr. Ford financed the violence study. He supported the violence study, and he did such a wonderful job that Adolf Hitler literally gave him a medal yeah. for developing the technology to be able to identify subhumans. I want to know where was the Mossad and where is the United States government that they can't see a connection between that and killing the Native Americans that made it possible to have this country? That's beyond absurdity. That is actually a global tragedy. That's that's a major stain uh, on the face of America. And I think the government itself needs to step up. We're talking about federal recognition. They ought to be saying thanks for helping us. No, no they know who we are. So why are we playing games? And why has the Ford family at least not said, "Hey, Uncle So and So was a, was a racist, a murderer"? No, there's no question about it. And you know the facts are all in writing. I mean, we know this exactly. We absolutely know this, hidden in plain sight. Unreal. Yeah. The other interesting thing that I want to point out, and I'll probably repeat this through the series, is Christopher St. Lawrence, who was the town supervisor at the town of Ramapo at the time that I was doing my studies of the soils and the groundwater and the plants and the animals and so forth, he took an active interest in this and told his legal team at the town hall, that'd be the Ramapo Town Hall, Ramapo, New mm -hmm. York, that whatever Chuck needs, you need to support this because we're eventually going to go after Ford. And there has not been a town supervisor before or since who's got the the balls, I'll say it, the balls to do something like that. And, of course, we know what happened to Chris. He was eventually taken down. We won't get into those details today, right. but he was taken down. And I personally feel that part of why he was taken down was because he was so actively progressing this uh, agenda of making sure Ford paid up. Ford ultimately paid close to $40 million for that cleanup. Right. And for Ford, it's a drop in the bucket. But nonetheless, right. they did that, which means that sets the standard. It could still be done in Ringwood. But in Ringwood, we don't have somebody nearly as ballsy 
as Christopher St. Lawrence in the municipal government. And just as sort of a footnote, I believe it was the Pearson family that had them name the town, the town of Ramapo, R-A-M-A-P-O. That is traditionally how the Muncie, the Ramapo people spelled it. We were allowed to spell it the Dutch way with the O-P-O-U-G-H. That's that's a classic master-slave positioning all over the world. You will spell your name the way we tell you, (laughs) and we will take your name and put it in charge of the power brokers. So what do we have? The town, the police, and et cetera. Yeah. The tribe got to be... And let me also preface that I really have not been aware of the Muncie's learning English, but once they did, uh, our spelling is far different than the Dutch spelling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's sort of, uh, right, that's, we also changed that recently Mm -hmm. because that's just a continuation of of psychologically being enslaved. Yeah, just another assault on your your personhood, really, you know, and and your... Wow, boy, this is interwoven deeply. You know, I I guess racism is something that has to be cultivated just like anything else. And here we are so many years later. A long time ago, somebody said to me, racism is learned and that's a good thing because what is learned can be unlearned. I learned something just recently. I'll be able to show you after uh, we're done. They're not calling it racism but the behavior modification, the affects that it's had on the male species throughout history going forward has been astonishing. And it actually started with breeding people. And it migrated into the rest of the society the way men and women interact. It's astonishing. So it, this is really, it's very informative, very instructive, because, you know, the kind of racism that I've always noted and seen through most of my life is usually the you know, racism of white supremacy against blacks. I've never really thought that much about what's happened to the American. I, I know that it was a, a terrible sin, one of one of our original sins. But I, I, you know, you don't you don't hear enough about it. You don't. It's not wrapped into history books enough. It's not studied enough. Obviously, by design. Obviously, for a reason. Yeah, and I, I think what's also when you think. Indians, I guess that's our generic term. You think of these beautiful people on horses and bonnets and all of that. Well, the fact is people dressed all over the world according to their environment, to their right. habitat. Right. In the East, we pretty pretty well just dressed as much as camouflage as possible. And also, if you think about some of these, let's say the three greatest war chiefs of the West from all over, riding through these brambles out back, it would look like the three stooges hit out there. <laughs> So, I mean, the environment yep. does have a, a big play oh, on what big, you're doing. Yeah, people are placed. They, yes. They, yeah, absolutely. So, Reflect what is the environment uh, they're in. And also, 200 years before there was any sizable European incursion west of the Mississippi, we'd already had windows, telegraphs, and trains. We've already had to be interact and interweave and survive through all of the initial racism, which what it was when people landed here, the, the doctrine of discovery. Before they even got out west, I'm glad they were able. I'm sure there would have been uh, a lot of resistance, but I I really believe if there would have been a serious toehold, if the Ramapos didn't resist to the extent they have over the years, I really believe they wouldn't have went to Africa. Our relatives out west wouldn't be riding horses. They would likely be picking cotton, and I'm not saying that to be insulting, 
But if they'd have thought it was easier to run over us, they'd have had an army when they got out that way. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So this is really interesting, what we've listened to so far today and, and where we're going with this. When we started talking about this, I thought, oh, well, this is, this is the story of how Ford polluted waterways and everything up in our area. And all of a sudden, I realized that there's this massive history behind all of this. And what Ford did assaults all of those who were the residents of this area. So very, very interesting. And with that, I guess we'll wrap up today. And we, one thing? Yeah, sure. There was a community of, of uh, black, whites, and some natives. It wasn't here. It was actually in Ladentown going over towards Letchworth Village. It was not the Muncies. It was... But it was people, they were, as far as I know, they were allies, probably some relatives. Yeah. Pincus Margulis. Yeah, there you yeah. go. He was a storekeeper, and his family had been uh, deeply involved. They were the remnants of that. They had the history of that. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Chief, for the for this episode, and thank you, Chuck. And uh, what are we going to talk about next week, Chuck? Uh, next week, I'm going to continue our little uh, journey into um, Turtle Clan country with a little bit more of a descriptive of what's going on there and how the people interact. All right. Well, folks, we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us for Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. And now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange, your hometown used bookstore. Now at our new location at 84 Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Now, if you've been here before, you'll love your next visit even more because we proudly share our new space with Astoria Hudson, a clothing boutique run by our good friend, Katie. The Montgomery Book Exchange is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can read a book enjoyed by someone a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margin giving you an insight as to what mattered the most to the previous reader. That's how Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their Facebook Live sales or their intimate author readings and book signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks? And did you know you can get store credits in the form of Montgomery Book Exchange book bucks when you bring your well-loved and gently used books in for a store credit? You can also find your Montgomery Book Exchange friends every first Friday evening at the monthly Handmade Montgomery event, which takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade items ranging from pottery to jewelry. For more information, just go to the MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. There's one more thing. They have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. 
The Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter is open Wednesday through Saturday. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can also contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. TheMontgomeryBookExchange.com Your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place. <laughs>